Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. One of the most important institutions when it comes to the way in which companies and other entities report in this country, whether it be to regulators or to the Australian Security Exchange, is the Australian Accounting Standards Board. It's not an entity that many people focus on during the course of their uh, business. It's usually a special interest type uh, of entity. People will monitor standard setting as a part of their career or talk to their auditors about what's coming up in reporting or whatever have you. But it's actually fundamental to understand that the Australian Accounting Standards Board and its sister body, the Australian Auditing and Assurance Standards Board, are entities that develop guidance that assist with us out there understanding what companies and other entities do in figures and increasingly in non-financial reporting, that is narrative disclosure. I'm fortunate that uh, we've got the new chair of the Australian Accounting Standards Board, it, uh, sort of fresh, not quite freshly minted, he's been in the role for just over six months, Dr Keith Kendall, to explain what uh, the AASB does, uh, his background and where the AASB is going in the next little while. Keith, thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me, Tom. Absolute pleasure. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of what the board does and how it works, uh, you uh, you will still be, to some people, uh, an unknown quantity because there's been no real public meetings or, uh, or they've been on Zoom and, and people haven't come into contact with you in this new role you've got. Uh, how would you describe your career up to this point? Now, the career that I've had has pretty much spanned both professional and uh, professional practice and academia uh, up till now. I started life as an account or professional life as an accounting academic um, uh, in the in the late nineties at out at Monash Uni. Um, mo- moved into chartered accounting, practice practicing in tax after after that. Mo- um, the tax the tax side of things saw me move into legal practice um, primarily as well as law academia where I was teaching predominantly tax but also still uh, some accounting and um, uh, business law subjects the uh, there was a, a stint for about six years at the at the Victorian bar most recently I um, had a position on the Administrative Appeals Tribunal before starting in this role, um, like we say, about six months ago. You've got an interesting mix of experiences there. And and, when you introduce to people, there's a a doctor in front of your name. Mm. Uh, Can you... Can we explore a little bit what your doctorate was, what type of uh, doctorate you did, and um, what conclusions you reached as a result of uh, the work you were doing in research? Sure. The the doctorate is what what's loosely uh, called a professional doctorate. So it was a combination of thesis and coursework. Um, it it was a uh, the the thesis is a fair bit shorter than a 
a full PhD and is essentially based on the American model where um, uh, in the United States there's no such thing as a PhD in law. The um, So for those of you for me, listeners familiar with the, with the qualifications, a doctor of juridical science. The thesis itself was on uh, behavioural law and economics uh, as, as it was applied to insider trading. The specific um, question that I dealt with was using um, a theory in psychology that's called prospect theory to justify why insider trading should be prohibited. Uh, at, at the time, I was very interested in behavioural law and economics as an academic discipline. I was interested in law and economics, um, behavioural economics slash finance as well. So it was a good it was a good mix, and I had done some academic work on insider trading. So it was, it, at the time, it was a very good um, confluence of interests that um, justified a, a substantial piece of research work. Um, now, essentially, it was a it was a theoretical piece that uh, argued that the uh, if insider trading is allowed in extreme circumstances, that could lead to uh, a, a total loss of liquidity in markets, lead, leading to the collapse of a capital market. Now, I emphasise that that's a theoretical position only. There are examples, uh, there are historical examples in practice where um, <clears throat> uh, insider trading had been permitted um, the, uh, because it's a relatively new prohibition, uh, particularly outside of the Anglophone world. Um, and uh, th those markets functioned. Um, I'm not going to go so far as to say that they didn't function as well as the Anglophone markets because I've never tested the theory empirically, uh, but that would be the expectation that that I would um, uh, do based on the theory that that I developed in that in that thesis. Um, and essentially the basis on which um, the loss of liquidity would happen is prospect theory stipulates that equivalent losses are felt more intensely than, um, than equivalent gains. And so consequently the prospect of uh, a guaranteed loss if uh, insider trading is permitted would prevent mum and dad type investors, outsider investors if you like, from in an extreme scenario participating in the market to use colloquial phrasing uh, because they're concerned that the, the game is rigged. Um, and so uh, because they can't see who they're trading with, then they, in an extreme scenario, they will just refuse to trade. Now, in economics, we worry about the marginal case. So it's really um, investors at the at the margins, and so it's those ones that a lot that would be more likely to to drop off, which leads to the loss of liquidity. Um, you would have to test empirically to see to what degree that, that would um, be lost. But that that's probably a little more detail than I normally go into. But um, that that's the short, comprehensive summary of what I did.
Now, there is something um, else that emerges from that, isn't there? Because uh, there's also, the you could equally apply that that theoretical contra- construct to uh, people's behaviour towards the tax regime, couldn't you? Uh, there is a, um, uh, I was going to say burgeoning field. I've seen a number of papers and um, back in my previous life as a tax academic at conferences that I attended, uh, applying these sorts of behavioural insights to taxpayer behaviour. Um, I must admit that I'm not particularly familiar with that literature, but I, c- I could see the attraction um, where you would um, uh, potentially be able to start applying that sort of theory to that, that context. It, it, that kind of thing's interested me for a very, very long time, which is in part why I asked the question. Um, <laughs> if we bring things forward to where you sit today, uh, there are um, a range of issues the board's grappling with at the current time. Um, where are things at at the moment with the long-running um, saga, if I could call it that, of uh, special purpose financial statements? Right. Well, that was, um, I suppose, the, la- the last thing that my predecessor, Chris Peach, managed to um, get get over the line um, uh, before she vacated the, uh, the chair seat for me um, in getting special purpose financial statements uh, removed uh, as an option for most for-profit reporting entities. Now, recently, um, the uh, implementing standards have gone, uh, have gone through, gone through the process so that they're, they're now part of the standard suite. The Having achieved that, what um, well the next the next step really is looking to review. We've flagged uh, the potential for it to be applied in the not for profit sector as well. Uh, it's something that we're actively looking at. Uh, that shouldn't be news to uh, anyone that's involved in, in the sector. Um, I know there are varying degrees of support. Um, within the sector for that, um, but the fact that we're looking at it should not be news. The uh, but it's far from a foregone conclusion where we will, where we will go on that. So the the process will um, it is at its early stages at the moment, and there'll be significant outreach on that. Uh, but that's part of a wider focus that we're turning our attention to to try to develop uh, standards in the not-for-profit area, by which I also include uh, the public sector, but um, the emphasis is on the um, private NFP sector in that sense. And so we're doing a lot of work on uh, the various reporting frameworks that the not-for-profit sector need to comply with. Uh, 
and, and and of course we've got other projects on the go, but that that's where um, the SPFS removal has re has really taken us. Uh, you've also had an involvement in not for profits in the past, um, and you know, in life things stick. You know, that whenever you do something, things stick with you. Uh, you make observations about how people cope with things. Uh, based on what you yourself have seen um, in not-for-profits you've been involved in, what are some of the challenges um, that a person that is not uh, trained up or uh, aware um, of you know, accounting and financial development spaces in a not-for-profit when all they want to do is run a little club or society? Uh, the, it's, a good, it's a good question. The, um, it, what, what immediately springs to mind is the complexity uh, of reporting. Uh, and from a number of quarters, I've heard the complaint that uh, accounting standards are too complex, uh, which I will admit is something that I am particularly sensitive to. Uh, but my next follow up to that is to point to where the complexity is. The reason why I'm concerned about that is uh, one of the objectives that uh, I see the AASB is um, trying to achieve is as far as possible to reduce compliance costs where, um, where, where we're able to do so. Uh, there's a number of ways of achieving that, um, but undue complexity certainly adds to the compliance cost burden on that with the amount of effort that needs to go into, into those standards. Now, with um, your hypothetical of a simple club, uh, I would like to think that uh, the issues that arise with those sorts of entities are relatively straightforward. And so the issues that have come across my desk that uh, have been, um, uh, that you would describe as complex, don't arise in those, um, for, for those reporting entities. Uh, I, I myself have been uh, treasurer of you know, sporting clubs and other small entities over the years. Uh, and my happy experience with that is that the certainly the complex issues that we're um, that I have come across my desk these days never came up in those contexts. So a good example of the sort of thing that is inherently complex is um, uh, try, trying to deal with uh, fair value measurement issues. Um, and we're putting in a lot of work on that at the moment, trying to, to develop a standard where, where that's um, uh, come into play. Um, but there are, there are certain issues. So um, uh, fortunately, uh, we didn't have to deal with this Back, back then, but one issue that we would be grappling with now, um, had that um, uh, had, had the had, had um, uh, the current standard been in place, although it is only for for profit uh, entities at the moment, is concessionary leases. 
So we certainly dealt with concessionary leases, but dealt with it on a uh, relatively straightforward basis. But that would um, that that's certainly a potential area that um, would these days uh, rep represent a, a challenge. I would expect, and that's something that I'm quite sensitive to. That your your small NFPs don't have the resources um, or, or necessarily the expertise, and by um, you, you gave the hypothetical about a, um, an individual not necessarily having any accounting training needing to deal with this for a small entity. I'll admit that I'm also sensitive, even if it's a highly trained accountant, just dealing with their local footy club, um, trying to put together um, uh, the, the accounts for the year because in that context, they're unlikely to have the support that they normally have if they were dealing with larger entities. So um, uh, even with training, there's the potential for things to be unduly burdensome. So uh, I'm certainly sensitive to those sorts of issues. It, it, there are several other issues that come into play, obviously, because on one hand, on the one hand, you've got um, committees of management or, or boards, depending on the structure people have, um, getting their head around what they need to be doing. But there's also uh, the, the issue of uh, of assurance as well. So you you transpose the preparer's challenges and the assurer's challenges, and it gets a bit complex uh, over time. Uh, given you and we will. Given where we're at at the moment on special purpose and not-for-profit, um, you've also had the challenge of dealing with COVID at the board, haven't you? Uh, right mm. from the outset, from early in May, uh, things were working. Can you describe what uh, what the board's done in that space? Uh, well, you're right, Tom. Uh, COVID has represented... Um, uh, some significant challenges. And the, fir the first thing that I'd say is based on the experience we've had over the last uh, six or so months is that the suite of accounting standards that we've got has held up remarkably well. Um, the, uh, it, th this is, that, that's not just me speaking there. That, that's a comment that I've heard from quite a number of different quarters. Uh, it was quite pleasing, I suppose, to see that the inherent challenges brought out by an unexpected pandemic uh, resulting in all the, um, all, all, all the occurrences that we've seen over the last six or so months um, didn't necessitate wholesale changes um, to the standards themselves. Now, we have brought out uh, that, that, that's not to say that there haven't been challenges, of course. Um, what I'm saying is that the, uh, th those challenges did not cause a breakdown in, in, the, in the standard uh, regime that, that's going. So um, the approach that we're taking with standard setting seems to have held up well to one of the most significant challenges that I dare say that, um, uh, that it's ever faced. In terms of the work that uh, the AASB has done in dealing with uh, COVID-19 uh, challenges, uh, we produced a suite of um, 
of publications which we called FAQs. Um, so we we're quite deliberate not to call them interpretations or guidance uh, because given that they were dealing with uh, standards applying to the for-profit sector, which are taken from the IASB, we didn't want to cross the line where anyone could be have the mistaken impression that we were adding to the standard at all. So the standard, we were very careful that the standard was going to remain unchanged in terms of its content, but we would then go and produce these documents that uh, would illustrate how the standard would operate um, given particular circumstances arising with COVID-19. Now, there has been some... Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I should say that um, the reception for those uh, FAQs has been overwhelmingly positive as well. So um, uh, a lot of that was done of our own initiative. It wasn't as if we... Um, heard a lot of feedback saying that, oh, we need some sort of direction in a particular area. Um, and then we went through our um, uh, process of writing it, producing it, and, th and then sending it out. Uh, what we had done is seen the issue coming. And by the time these issues were becoming apparent to preparers, we managed uh, to tend to get the FAQ document out right at about that time. So uh, the, the team at the AASB did remarkably well in terms of anticipating and servicing what our stakeholders really needed in those circumstances there. Now, that being said, there are one or two areas where improvement could, could be um, uh, could be achieved, and in particular, it's in the area of uh, going con uh, going concern. Uh, first of all, the disclosures required with respect to, to going concern, and also what happens if the going concern assumption no longer applies. Now, this is an interesting area in that we made a deliberate decision at the AASB to, uh, not to take any formal action on that on our own accord. Of course, we had an FAQ document, but as I um, said a few moments ago, that uh, deliberately does not add to the standard at all. Um, however, our cousins uh, across the ditch in New Zealand uh, went in a different direction and actually mandated certain um, additional disclosures, which do go above and beyond um, the international standard, and that was a deliberate decision on their their part. We had a look at at that quite closely and did contemplate going down the same road and decided not to. Um, however, we both, when I say we, I mean both the AASB um, and the New Zealand Board are um, have made submissions to um, the International Accounting Standards Board to try to. Uh, reform the, um, the standard with respect to going concern disclosures and um, non-going concern basis of accounting um, to put that on their work agenda over the, the next um, over the next cycle.
It's an interesting question that, that, that poses. I mean, once you, if you adopt standard A from the IASB, um, that doesn't necessarily preclude you from adding a disclosure. No, it certainly doesn't. Um, but we're very sensitive to requiring Australian entities to do anything that their international equivalents don't have to. Yeah, but it, it, it's still. But this was a debate when, when mm -hmm. uh, the international standards were first adopted. You know, how far can you go in domestic guidance? Or is that is it a standard setting issue? Is it a is it a thing for the domestic regulator to do, or is it something that is a part of the the Corporations Act and doesn't sit within uh, the specific accounting standards. So it ends up being a case of where you want to park something additional if that's in fact where you where you end up going. Mm. I suppose really the answer would would be um, uh, depending on what the very specific issue is. Yeah, but then, I mean, the, the ever since the adoption directive came came in in 2002, that's been a reasonably sensitive space uh, <laughs> for, for the standard setters and, and certainly some of the constituents uh, that may work for, for large global organisations. Um, but it, the other thing that I would like to touch on uh, with you, Keith, in the time we've got uh, is the emerging discussion about non-financial reporting, particularly in the area of sustainability. What You've had a bit of time to do an environmental scan of, of the space. What are the initial impressions you've got of, of that particular discussion? Uh, in, ter in terms of... Um uh, non-financial disclosures generally. Um, yeah, the, uh, well, the, there's certainly a lot of work going on um, in that area, non-financial disclosures generally, as well as sustainability disclosures. Um, the non-financial um, uh, disclosures, the really tied up in the IASB's project on management commentary, which we are taking an active interest in. So uh, that's certainly something that, that's coming along. The In terms of the sustainability type of stuff, there's um, uh, what I would call active consideration around this. Uh, there are a number of um, meetings that... I've been involved with, the AASB has been involved with. There is there is a little bit of a sense that there's a bit more momentum coming up. Um, the, your listeners, no doubt, would be at least aware of the integrated reporting movement that, that's going around. Uh, I've seen a lot of activity with respect, with respect to that. Um, so it, it's coming along, but I wouldn't say that... Um, there's anything specific, specifically concrete that I would point to right at this moment. What's an except for the AASB in that space? Is it, is it, uh, the, uh, have you just got the watching brief at the moment? Uh, at the moment, yes. The um, On the management commentary side of things, um, the IASB 
is um, uh, actively considering it. Uh, so I'm aware that uh, it, it's a perennial that's on their work agenda um, uh, with, with, their, with their meetings. Um, <clears throat> the uh, importantly on that one is that it's non-mandatory at the moment. So we, which is why we haven't formally adopted that in Australia uh, currently. The, um, I would describe it as a watching brief, but maybe go a, a step further and say we're, we're actively watching it. Um, it, it. It's something that we are watching very, very closely and it is the subject of regular discussions um, uh, behind the scenes. Uh, I'm mindful of the time, Keith, and you've been very generous with, with your time uh, today. Uh, what is the... Are there any other areas that are uh, cropping up as issues that you are noticing as, one, as ones that are going to come over the horizon at the moment? Not so much that we haven't already discussed. Um, the management commentary and non-financial disclosures, I would put at the, the top of the list in terms of its broad reach. Um, <clears throat> the uh, development in the not-for-profit uh, sector, uh, I certainly didn't want to downplay its importance, um, but the reason why that's second on my list there is that that's, uh, that's more of an Australian-specific thing. So the, mani the management commentary, non-financial disclosures are, are more of a um, international matter, um, so much broader reach. The and uh, within within that, um, you you would talk about ma um, uh, management performance measures, which has been something of a bit um, bit of a discussion, um, and we've also talked about go uh, going concern projects. So look, they're the three big things that I. Had you asked me that question up front that I would have identified at the start, um, and we've covered those in a fair bit of depth. There are other other matters going on, but uh, not not quite uh, as much significance, I'd say. The um, example is that, well, the leasing standard is relatively new. Um, I've had a bit of feedback both ways on that one. So it's really a case of looking to see how that one's been implemented. But like uh, to use your term from before, there's a, there's a number of watching briefs we've got, but nothing that I would highlight over and above what we've already discussed. Well, the thing is with, the, with leasing, it's been a thorn in the side of standard setting since around about the 1980s when <laughs> the conceptual framework came in and Standards that have said, well, we, the logical answer with a conceptual framework is when you lease something, you've got an asset, put it on balance sheet. Mm. Um, and it's taken up until the, you know, the 2000s, uh, several decades after things blew up over a conceptual framework for there to be a, a standard that deals with, you know, the 
um, right of use type asset arrangement. Uh, so things move slowly in the world <laughs> you're in now. They don't tend to move quickly. Um, so Keith, thanks so much for joining me for, for this particular podcast. No, thanks very much for having me, Tom. Absolute, absolute pleasure. And I look forward to uh, perhaps doing something uh, uh, around about or shortly after the, the next board meeting when, uh, when you've got some news on developments. Terrific. Uh, thank you.